Chapter 2 of Book 6 of Les Miserables, Volume 2, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Schiewitz. Les Miserables, Volume 2, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 6. Le Petit Picpu, Chapter 2. The Obedience of Martin Verga. This convent, which in 1824 had already existed for many a long year in the Rue Petit Picpu, was a community of Bernardines in the obedience of Martin Verga. These Bernardines were attached, in consequence, not to Clairvaux, like the Bernardine monks, but to Citeaux, like the Benedictine monks. In other words, they were the subjects not of St. Bernard, but of St. Benoit. Anyone who has turned over old folios to any extent knows that Martin Verga founded in 1425 a congregation of Bernardines Benedictines, with Salamanca for the head of the order, and Alcala as the branch establishment. This congregation had sent out branches throughout all the Catholic countries of Europe. There is nothing unusual in the Latin church in these graphs of one order on another. To mention only a single order of St. Benoit, which is here in question, there are attached to this order, without counting the obedience of Martin Verga, four congregations, two in Italy, Montcassin and St. Justine of Padua, two in France, Cluny and St. Maur, and nine orders, Valombrosa, Gramont, the Celestins, the Camadules, the Carthusians, the Humilies, the Oliveteurs, the Silvestrans, and lastly, Citeaux. For Citeaux itself, a trunk for other orders, is only an offshoot of saint Benoit. Citeaux dates from Saint-Robert, Abbé de Molesme, in the Diocese of Langres, in 1098. Now it was in 529 that the devil, having retired to the desert of Subiaco, he was old, had he turned hermit, was chased from the ancient temple of Apollo, where he dwelt, by Saint Benoit, then aged seventeen. After the rule of the Carmelites, who go barefoot, wear a bit of willow on their throats, and never sit down, the harshest rule is that of the Bernardine Benedictines of Martin Verga. They are clothed in black, with a gimp, which, in accordance to the express command of Saint Benoit, mounts to the chin, a robe of serge with large sleeves, a woolen veil, the gimp which mounts to the chin cut square on the breast, the band which descends over their brow to their eyes, this is their dress. All is black except the band, which is white. The novices wear the same habit, but all in white. The professed nuns also wear a rosary at their side. The Bernardine Benedictines of Martin Verga practice the perpetual adoration, like the Benedictines called Ladies of the Holy Sacrament, who at the beginning of this century had two houses in Paris, one at the temple, the other in the Rue Neuve Saint Geneviève. However, the Bernardine Benedictines of the Petit Picpu, of whom we are speaking, were a totally different order from the ladies of the Holy Sacrament, cloistered in the Rue of Saint Genevieve and at the temple. 
There were numerous differences in their rule. There were some in their costume. The Bernardine Benedictine of the Petit Picpus wore the black gimp, and the Benedictine of the Holy Sacrament and of the Rue Neuf Saint Genevieve wore a white one, and had, besides, on their breasts a holy sacrament about three inches long, in silver gilt or gilded copper. The nuns of the Petit Picpus did not wear this holy sacrament. The perpetual adoration, which was common to the house of the Petit Picpus and to the house of the temple, leaves those two orders perfectly distinct. Their only resemblance lies in this practice of the ladies of the Holy Sacrament and the Bernadines of Martin Verga, just as there existed a similarity in the study and the glorification of all the mysteries relating to the infancy, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ and the Virgin between the two orders, which were, nevertheless, widely separated, and on occasion even hostile. The Oratory of Italy, established at Florence by Philip de Neri, and the Oratory of France, established by Pierre de Berrou. The Oratory of France claimed the precedence, since Philip de Neri was only a saint, while Berrou was a cardinal. Let us return to the harsh Spanish rule of Martin Verga. The Bernardine Benedictines of this obedience fast all the year round, abstain from meat, fast in Lent and on many other days which are peculiar to them, rise from their first sleep from one to three o'clock in the morning to read their breviary and to chant matins, sleep in all seasons between serge sheets and on straw, make no use of the bath, never light a fire, scourge themselves every Friday, observe the rule of silence, speak to each other only during the recreation hours which are very brief, and wear drugget chemises for six months in the year, from September 14th, which is the exaltation of the Holy Cross, until Easter. These six months are a modification. The rule says all the year, but this drugget chemise, intolerable in the heat of summer, produced fevers and nervous spasms. The use of it had to be restricted. Even with this palliation, when the nuns put on this chemise on the 14th of September, they suffer from fever for three or four days. Obedience, poverty, chastity, perseverance in their seclusion, these are their vows, which the rule greatly aggravates. The prioress is elected for three years by the mothers, who are called mere vocale because they have a voice in the chapter. A prioress can only be re-elected twice, which fixes the longest possible reign of a prioress at nine years. They never see the officiating priest, who is always hidden from them by a serge curtain nine feet in height. During the sermon, when the preacher is in the chapel, they drop their veils over their faces. They must always speak low, walk with their eyes on the ground and their heads bowed. One man only is allowed to enter the convent, the archbishop of the diocese. There is really one other, the gardener, but he is always an old man and in order that he may always be alone in the garden, and that the nuns may be warned to avoid him, a bell is attached to his knee. Their submission to the prioress is absolute and passive. It is the canonical subjection in the full force of its abnegation. As at the voice of Christ, ut voci Christi, at a gesture, at the first sign,
ad nutum, ad primum signum, immediately, with cheerfulness, with perseverance, with a certain blind obedience, prompte, hilariter, perseveranter, et ceca quadam obedientia, as in the file in the hand of the workman, quasi limam in manibus fabri, without power to read or to write, without express permission, legere vel scribere, non arisgerit, sine expressad superioris licentia. Each one of them in turn makes what they call reparation. The reparation is the prayer for all the sins, for all the faults, for all the dissensions, for all the violations, for all the iniquities, for all the crimes committed on earth, for the space of twelve consecutive hours from four o'clock in the afternoon till four o'clock in the morning, or from four o'clock in the morning until four o'clock in the afternoon, the sister who is making reparation remains on her knees on the stone before the holy sacrament, with hands clasped, a rope around her neck. When her fatigue becomes unendurable, she prostrates herself flat on her face against the earth with her arms outstretched in the form of a cross. This is her only relief. In this attitude she prays for all the guilty in the universe. This is great to sublimity. As this act is performed in front of a post on which burns a candle, it is called without distinction to make reparation or to be at the post. The nuns even prefer out of humility, this last expression, which contains an idea of torture and abasement. To make reparation is a function in which the whole soul is absorbed. The sister at the post would not turn round were a thunderbolt to fall directly behind her. Besides this, there is always a sister kneeling before the Holy Sacrament. This station lasts an hour. They relieve each other like soldiers on guard. This is the perpetual adoration. The prioresses and the mothers almost always bear names stamped with peculiar solemnity, recalling not the saints and martyrs, but moments in the life of Jesus Christ, as Mother Nativity, Mother Conception, Mother Presentation, Mother Passion. But the names of saints are not interdicted. When one sees them, one never sees anything but their mouths. All their teeth are yellow. No toothbrush ever entered that convent. Brushing one's teeth is at the top of a ladder at whose bottom is the loss of one's soul. They never say, my. They possess nothing of their own, and they must not attach themselves to anything. They call everything our, thus, our veil, our chaplet. If they were speaking of their chemise, they would say our chemise. Sometimes they grow attached to some petty object, to a book of hours, a relic, a medal that has been blessed. As soon as they become aware that they are growing attached to this object, they must give it up. They recall the words of St. Therese, to whom a great lady said, as she was on the point of entering her order, Permit me, mother, to send for a Bible to which I am greatly attached. Ah, you are attached to something. In that case, do not enter our order. Every person whatever is forbidden to shut herself up, to have a place of her own, a chamber. They live with their cells open. 
When they meet, one says, Blessed and adored be the most holy sacrament of the altar. The other responds, Forever. The same ceremony when one taps at the other's door. Hardly has she touched the door when a soft voice on the other side is heard to say hastily, Forever. Like all practices, this becomes mechanical by force of habit, and one sometimes says forever before the other has had time to say the rather long sentence, Praised and adored be the most holy sacrament of the altar. Among the visitandines, the one who enters says Ave Maria, and the one whose cell is entered says Gratia Plena. It is their way of saying good day, which is in fact full of grace. At each hour of the day, three supplementary strokes sound from the church bell of the convent. At this signal, prioress, vocal mothers, professed nuns, lay sisters, novices, postulants, interrupt what they are saying, what they are doing, or what they are thinking, and all say in unison if it is five o'clock, for instance, at five o'clock and at all hours, praised and adored be the most holy sacrament of the altar. If it is eight o'clock, at eight o'clock and at all hours, and so on, according to the hour. This custom, the object of which is to break the thread of thought and to lead it back constantly to God, exists in many communities. The formula alone varies. Thus, at the infant Jesus, they say, at this hour and at every hour may the love of Jesus kindle my heart. The Bernardine Benedictines of Martin Verga, cloistered fifty years ago at Petit Picpu, chant the offices to a solemn psalmody, a pure Gregorian chant, and always with full voice during the whole course of the office. Everywhere in the missal where an asterisk occurs, they pause and say in a low voice, Jésus Marie Joseph. For the office of the dead, they adopt a tone so low that the voices of women can hardly descend to such a depth. The effect produced is striking and tragic. The nuns of the Petit Picpu had made a vault under their grand altar for the burial of their community. The government, as they say, does not permit this vault to receive coffins, so they leave the convent when they die. This is an affliction to them, and it causes them consternation as an infraction of the rules. They had obtained a mediocre consolation at best, permission to be interred at a special hour and in a special corner, in the ancient Vaugirard Cemetery, which was made of land which had formerly belonged to the community. On Fridays, the nuns hear high mass, vespers, and all the offices as on Sunday. They scrupulously observe, in addition to all the little festivals unknown to people of the world, of which the Church of France was so prodigal in the olden days, and of which it is still prodigal in Spain and Italy. Their stations in the chapel are interminable. As for the number and duration of their prayers, we can convey no better idea of them than by quoting the ingenuous remark of one of them. The prayers of the postulants are frightful. The prayers of the novices are still worse, and the prayers of the professed nuns are still worse. Once a week the chapter assembles. The prioress presides, the vocal mothers assist. Each sister kneels in turn on the stones, and confesses aloud in the presence of all the faults and sins which she has committed during the week. 
the vocal mothers consult after each confession and inflict the penance aloud. Besides this confession in a loud tone, for which all faults in the least serious are reserved, they have for their venial offenses what they call the coupe. To make one's coupe means to prostrate oneself flat on one's face during the office in front of the prioress until the latter, who is never called anything but our mother, notifies the culprit by a slight tap of her foot against the wood of her stall that she can rise. The coupe or perchavi is made for a very small matter, a broken glass, a torn veil, an involuntary delay of a few seconds at an office, a false note in church, etc. This suffices and the coupe is made. The coupe is entirely spontaneous. It is the culpable person herself, the word is etymologically in its place here, who judges herself and inflicts it on herself. On festival days and Sundays, four mother presenters intone the offices before a large reading desk with four places. One day one of the mother presenters intoned a psalm beginning with Ecce, and instead of Ecce she uttered aloud the three notes Do Si Sol. For this piece of absent-mindedness she underwent a coupe which lasted during the whole service. What rendered the fall enormous was the fact that the chapter had laughed. When a nun is summoned to the parlor, even were it the prioress herself, she drops her veil, as will be remembered, so that only her mouth is visible. The prioress alone can hold communication with strangers. The others can only see their immediate family, and that very rarely. If, by chance, an outsider presents herself to see a nun, or one whom she has known and loved in the outer world, a regular series of negotiations is required. If it is a woman, the authorization may sometimes be granted. The nun comes, and they talk to her through the shutters, which are opened only for a mother or sister. It is unnecessary to say that permission is always refused to men. Such is the rule of St. Benoit, aggravated by Martin Verga. These nuns are not gay, rosy, and fresh, as the daughters of other orders often are. They are pale and grave. Between 1825 and 1830, three of them went mad. End of Book 6, Chapter 2 Recording by Amy Shewitz